This podcast discusses sensitive topics that may contain graphic depictions of violence, substance use, self-harm, explicit language, and other content that some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. I had no idea that someone like me could have PTSD. Um, my understanding of that was that people who go to Iraq have PTSD. People who go to Afghanistan have PTSD. People who have seen people murdered in front of them have PTSD. Someone like me who comes from a, this good family who um, you know, is just normal is not supposed to have PTSD. Welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. You are invited to open your hearts and ears to the powerful stories of others. Here, you are no longer alone. You hear your experience, your strength, your hope in the words of others. Join us on this journey as we conquer our past, live in the present, and dream for our future. Together we choose our story. Welcome, welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. My name is Kevin Colbert. Thank you for joining us. This is episode six of the Survivor Story Podcast. Today we are talking with Michael. I met Michael um, when I was deep in my own process of recovery and digging myself out of rock bottom so it was really nice to one just reconnect with michael but then also um, be privileged to listen to michael's whole story because i knew a lot of bits and pieces of michael and what he experienced but i never knew the whole thing and some of the details and so it was really nice to one do that but then also like have this amazing q a um, that I just gained so much insight into my life. I think Michael has done so much work and just really has put himself in the, tr or like dug himself out of the trenches and his work in just being of service and helping others is kind of his like waypoint, his guide to helping himself. And I think it's, such a beautiful practice that um, he really dives in and teaches us a lot about. And one of the unique pieces of Michael's story is kind of not understanding like what was wrong, not like understanding the effects that trauma had on him, not even knowing why or how he could even have trauma and PTSD and, you know, just f knowing something was wrong, but not knowing why. And then eventually getting down to the roots and the reasons for why his life was the way it was and why he developed addictions and was just running his life into the ground. And he's really done the work to pick it up and turn it around and also help others turn their lives around. So, um, it's an amazing story to just hear and witness and um so thankful that Michael has been able to do this and do this work and help others and help myself just by 
sharing his story, by being a witness, by supporting me and others in just whatever way he can. So let's just dive in and listen to the person who can tell the story the best, Michael. Here we go. Okay. Um, so uh, my name is Michael. Uh, I'm from Indiana originally. Um, I was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, at the age of six, we moved to South Bend, and that's where I spent um, ages eight, six through 18. Um, and then I went to the University of Dayton and um, moved back to South Bend and then eventually ended up in Colorado. Um, that's kind of the the bare bones, 30,000 foot view of where I've been. Um, you know, I started out, um, in Indianapolis. I'm one of five. Um, I'm the oldest of five. Um, I have a sister who's about two years younger than me. And then the sister after her, um, Lila passed away, um, when I was three years old. And that's really where, um, I guess my trauma story really starts. Um, where, the story of me not feeling okay, me not um, knowing that life was going to be okay, um, constantly living in fear, constantly thinking that things were my fault, um, constantly thinking that I was the problem. That all originates there for me. Um, and I don't, I don't know if anyone um, is familiar with inner child work, but that's the age of my inner child is three. Um, my my first childhood memory is of. Um, my parents fighting inside, inside the house, and um, me sitting on the front porch consoling my sister. Um, and I don't know what they were fighting about. I just know that they're fighting, and I am wearing um, red overalls with the yellow shirt underneath, consoling my my little sister. Um, and so from that from that point forward, life became it was just different, right? It was just, it was, it was different. Um, once my sister died, um, you know, my, my parents weren't, um, physically abusive. Uh, I remember being spanked a handful of times. Um, sometimes the stories are, you know, cause there's so few of them, a couple of them are funny. Um, like when I was seven, I, uh, told my brother that the middle fingers meant hello so my three, my two year old little brother from his car seat in the way back goes, "Hey, Dad," and threw up the birds. That's the funny part of the story. The, the not so funny part of the story is that I got yanked out of the car and spanked in front of my friends. Um, and so that's that's really like you know not not a lot of physical abuse on that side. It was more um, the mental warfare of living in that household. Um, my parents fought every single day um, from the time that. Um, I can remember until they ended up getting divorced when I was 25. Um, so for me, like that's a pretty significant piece, you know, tr constantly trying to intervene, trying to be more perfect, trying to not upset the family dynamic to, um, not create the, you know, the rage or the dysfunction or any, you know, always walking on eggshells every single day, um, and constantly living in fear. Um, and so, 
you know, when we moved at, at the age of six, you know, I didn't un- understand really why we had to move. I understand that we needed to move because um, of my dad's job and him getting a new opportunity. Uh, but I really liked where we, we went to school. I liked the friends that I had there. And it was really the last time that I felt um, friendship as friendship. You know, when I, when I moved to South Bend, it became about um, what sports do I play? How good of an athlete am I? Am I? How well do I perform in school? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? Um, it was never um, for fun and for free, it felt like. Felt like there was always a price tag to everything, um, and so um, that move really. Um, nowadays, I, I I can identify it as being really significant, um, but back then I had no idea the path I was about to walk down. Um, my grandfather also died that next summer um, or spring, um, and. Uh, According to many, he was an alcoholic and a uh, very um, difficult man to live with from a family perspective, but to the community to the community and to the outside world, uh, he was amazing. He was um, I don't want to say saintly, but you know he was everyone would report how great your grandfather is and how amazing of a doctor he is and all this stuff and uh, that became the the motto of our family was however the outside looks is what matters. What goes on in the family home stays in the family home and we don't talk about it. And so, um, you know, in, in the recent years after um, he's died, my, my family has shared stories about how, you know, my, my grandmother's brothers would have to come over to, to calm him down. Um, because he was starting to become physically abusive or verbally abusive or whatnot. Um, so that kind of shows some of the lineage for me on, on that familial trauma, the, um, the, the legacy trauma or the trauma background of where I come from and what the family environment I've been raised in um, extends to. But the, but the really confusing thing was um, when, when he was dying, he told me that he loved me. And I always had a great relationship with this man. I was the only one that really got to see that side of him, uh, which is really kind of kind of confusing, but tough to you know swallow that. Like, why am I special? Like, why why is he treating me this way? Why does no one else seem to think this? Why is everyone talking so poorly about him? Um, and he didn't he didn't say that to his own son, you know, my dad, and he didn't say that to my dad's brothers or you know, my dad's sister. And, um, it was just, a lot of that was very confusing. And with all this death early in my life, I didn't understand why people like, I knew people died, but like, why, like, why did they have to die? Why didn't they, why did God, you know, everyone told me God took them for a reason. I was like, why would God do that? You know, why, why is this going the way this is? And so that idea of being perfect, the idea of, um, walking on eggshells, it just got perpetuated even deeper. Um, I was raised in um, a very uh, religious environment. Um, you know, I was, I was raised Catholic, and um, I know that there are loads of different um, representations of Catholicism out there, and I don't want to really speak to that. Um, I just want to speak to my experience with what I was raised in. and. Um, 
it was a very shaming, like kind of dysfunctional culture for me. Um, it was uh, a lot about the image, you know, you give a lot of money to the church, um, so that your name would go on plaques or benches would be donated to you or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's, it's not so much that you do good things. It's about how people see you, um, the perception. And then a lot of the, um, confusing things that were starting to come out in the news and being told that, oh, that was just that person, you know, it wasn't the church, the church is this church is that. And, um, you know, I had, I, I came from a culture where, um, a, a lot of behaviors and actions were demonized. Um, you know, uh, homosexuality, masturbation, like a lot of the sexual topics, um, but also lifestyle choices like, um, drinking or drug use were demonized, um, as character flaws, right? All these were character flaws. You were made bad. Um, and so that, that shame, that, um, unworthiness, that innate, um, not good enough was instilled in me throughout my education. Um, and even though it was for me, a lot of like, this is just what we do and we just need to continue doing, I got to keep doing the dance, right? I got to keep fitting in. I got to keep doing whatever I got to do to make the outsides look good. So I had very good grades. I was a multiple sport athlete. Um, you know, I would, I would consider myself being friendly with everybody. Um, you know, it, it, I always had, um, large groups of people around, um, it seemed, or was always included. Uh, but I never felt a part of, I always felt like I was an outsider. I always felt different. Um, and I always felt like I just was not a part of the crew. Um, and so, you know, as I got started to get older, um, you know, I started getting made fun of for um, my weight, um, for playing tennis, um, for not being able to um, be around every weekend or do the things that the other kids were doing. I was traveling for tennis and um, pursuing that opportunity. And um, going into high school, I got recognized by the local paper and people knew who I was and my family was very prominent. Um, my uncle was a professional tennis player. And so people knew who I was and that was terrifying for me, right? Or the idea of them knowing who I was. Um, you know, I tried to, um, downplay it. I was just another guy on the team. I'm not that special. Um, and that was really kind of damaging for me in that, um, it's really hard for me to accept compliments and it's really hard for me to acknowledge that I'm good at anything, even today. Um, and so being raised in that environment of um, like being made fun of for succeeding and being made fun of for failing, right? What, what am I supposed to do? How do, I, how do I hit that perfect middle ground and, and live on that knife's edge? And um, it, was, it was really tough. It was really tough to um, cope with that and to feel like I was different, not fitting in. I was the fat kid. I was this kid. I was, you know, whatever it might be. And uh, not really knowing my place in the world at the end of the day. Um, and, and so, you know, moving, moving into and through high school, um, you know, I, I got the opportunity to start drinking when I was 14, um, 14, 15. Um, and it was the first time where I was part of the group. You know, I had, 
a small group of really close friends um, and um, or what I perceived as really close friends at that time. Um, and, you know, I finally got the opportunity to go drink in the basement with everybody else. And that's when the light bulb went on. You know, that's when um, everything became okay. I was part of the guys, I was part of the crew, and drinking was my way in. And um, turns out that I'm I'm pretty good at it. Um, and that would that that path again, no idea the path I'm going down. Um, unable to deal with what's going on um, around me. Um, my family life is on the outside perfect. Everyone thinks that we are perfect. We are perfect siblings. We you know have a perfect life, and the turmoil at home is just ratcheted up through the roof. Um, my parents, I, at this point, once I'm in high school, my parents are sleeping in um, different rooms. Um, I, the last time I saw my parents sleep in the same bed even was probably when I was 12 years old, um, and I'm 30 now. And um, So just not knowing what a, what a healthy family dynamic looks like, not knowing how to solve problems. My idea of dealing with problems is that you just put them away, you don't talk about them, and then they go away. And that's not so much the case. Um, so in high school, um, you know, I, I got accepted in the University of Dayton. I got rejected from pretty much everywhere else that I applied. Um, and that was just reaffirming that I'm not good enough, right? When people below me in class rank and grades and SATs and all that stuff are getting in and I'm getting straight up rejected, um, reaffirming. Michael's not good enough. Michael's not good enough. Um, that I'm not part of the crew, that I'm not part of the team, that I'm, you know, I got to work harder. I got to be more. I got to do something special. And, um, and, and I could just never meet that standard. Um, so during, during high school, um, one, of the, one of the defining factors, um, part, of the, part of the sexual trauma that I experienced was um, I had my sex ed class taught by a priest. Um, which blew my mind. Um, but also kind of the, the messaging in that was like completely misguided and completely lost. Um, and then at, so that was my freshman year at the end of my, or my senior year, this priest selected a group of us to be in a secret society, um, that were going to be groomed for the priesthood. And, um, that, that just like, mortified me. I was just so appalled that he would do this and um, suggest that I would even be remotely interested in this. And um, it just like, it just the, the two ends of it just really like, because everyone else I knew was super into this, into religion and into the, the principles that were there. And I was just rebelling hard on the inside and not knowing how to, um, deal with that rebellion. Um, so in the middle of, of that time period, um, I actually got, um, I, I started, um, watching porn and, um, my, my addiction to that really started taking off. Um, and, um, one of the defining factors of my life, which to give a little backstory, this me and my dad do not have a close intimate relationship. Um, he has not been a big part of my life, even though he's there in my life. Um, we do not talk about deep, emotional, meaningful things. 
We do not talk about our feelings. We do not talk about really anything other than news, weather, sports. Um, when I was when I was nine or ten, we went to a basketball camp, and I was just it was Father's Day, and I was just wrecked on the inside. And you know, I told him I'm, I'm in tears, and um, telling him, you know, Dad, I, I love you so much. I love our family so much, and I'm so grateful for you. And he he looks at me and told me to stop crying so I could smile for the picture. And that is just kind of a microcosm of my life. So when I was 16 and, and I, got, I got caught watching porn um, for the first time, I was taken out to Jimmy John's and told not to have those feelings. And um, it, I mean, again, that, that just is that, that moment, that, that idea that if I'm going to do it, I got to hide it. And if I, if I am doing it, I can't talk about it. Um, and if I am struggling, I sure should don't say anything to anybody ever about anything that's going on. And so um, that that moment really shaped about the next ten years of my life. Um, you know, I, I went to college um, and I started drinking as much as I could, as often as I could, um, any any opportunity that I got. Um, the first ten days I spent more or less in a blackout. Um, drinking as much as I could every single day, um, having alcohol thrown at me in every opportunity that I could get. Um, and that's where things really just started for me. Um, the last time I threw up from drinking was when I was 18 years old. Um, and I just, I couldn't get to that point anymore. I couldn't get to the point of, um, excess. It was just drink God knows how much and then pass out. And um, after after graduating, which I don't remember, um, I um, bounced around between South Bend and Dayton um, for a while, um, holding down different odd jobs. Um, you know, in, in that time, um, my sister lost the ability to walk. Um, I was not really present for that. She retaught herself how to walk. She's amazing. She's a miracle worker. Um, she's doing incredible things today. Um, and and I was just a wreck that whole time. Um, when I um, finished up, um, like finally moving back to, to South Bend, final, you know, completely and settling in a, a job or what was supposed to be a career job for me. Um, I was living at my, my parents' house. My parents aren't even living in the same place. Um, at this time, my dad is sleeping in a different location and showing up in the mornings like nothing's changed. It was very strange. Um, you know, I, I'm starting to try to get this career on track, but I'm showing up to work sporadically. I'm a mess all the time. Um, when I do drink, I'm drinking, or drink in public, I should say. Um, I'm getting so drunk that people are noticing that I have a problem. So my, my drinking, um, since I was about 19 years old, has slowly been progressing towards um, being a closet drinker. But at this time, I'm hiding bottles in my, um, I'm sleeping in my sister's room because I'm not sleeping in my room. Um, and, you know, hiding bottles in there. And, um, you know, my nicotine addiction is now ramping up even further. So I'm, I'm dipping multiple logs, a, um, or sorry, multiple tins a day. Um, 
And eventually I acquire enough money to move out on my own, which was probably the worst situation for someone like me um, because now I have money and I have isolation um, that are really just going to um, kind of take this thing full throttle for me. Um, so my parents end up – my mom files for a divorce um, that November and uh, I um, – I'm, I'm just – I'm I'm lost. I'm I'm so lost. Now I have the perfect reason to be even more lost. So um, I stop showing up to work altogether. Um, I am drinking um, every day. If I don't drink on a day, it's an absolute miracle at that point. Um, I'm dipping more than a log a day uh, most days. Um, just spending money out the wazoo. I now have a gambling problem. Um, I have. Um, all these issues, my weight is now 280 degrees and I just, I spent seven months just absolutely self-destructing. Um, I ended up testifying in my parents' divorce, um, and being questioned by, um, more or less my character questioned by, uh, the, um, my, my, one of the attorneys and, um, and this individual was one of our family friends for the last 15 years. And um, the the rage and, the, and all of those feelings just sitting on that stand um, while that's happening, I have no real memory of um, anything after um, about the first two questions. Um, and then on the, being on the outside with my siblings. Um, and so, uh, you know, as all that's spiraling out of control, um, somehow, some way, um, my mother shows up on my doorstep um, at the start of April and, you know, begs me to get help. I refuse. I make an agreement that I'll get help if she leaves so I can continue doing whatever I'm doing. And um, I, end, I end up making a phone call and, and getting into a place um, that allows me to finally breathe, right? I'm finally just someone help me because I can't figure out what's going on with me. You know, I haven't been to work in seven or eight months. Um, my, my weight is almost at 300 pounds in this moment. Um, I have this out of control nicotine problem. Um, didn't really acknowledge I was drinking as much as I was at that time, but knew that things were just bad. Um, I was, losing money all the time, um, whether it's gambling or, you know, compulsive eating or the drinking or the nicotine or whatever. But I knew that life was just got like over, um, in that moment, the way that I had known it. And, um, when they, they made me fill out a test there and on, I don't even know what test it is, but, um, I scored, I think a 63 out of 65 or 60 out of 63, something like that on their PTSD test. And I had no idea that someone like me could have PTSD. Um, my understanding of that was that people who go to Iraq have PTSD. People who go to Afghanistan have PTSD. People who have seen people murdered in front of them have PTSD. Someone like me who comes from this good family who, um, you know, is just normal is not supposed to have PTSD. And, uh, that blew me away. And I knew that there was something really wrong with what was going on in my life. And I knew that there was something that 
um, was way down deeper than just I, I drank a little bit too much or things like that. Um, so um, I stayed, and I stayed for 45 days. And um, what I learned is that uh, what was going on in my family was really not okay. And the way that um, problems were dealt with was really not okay. And the way that I lived life was, and coped with life was really not okay. And so um, that, was, that was the crack that got me into long-term recovery. Um, I ended up going to another facility for three months, learning um, about alcoholism and um, addiction and um, working a 12-step program and um, for the first time letting, letting other people, specifically men my age, see me as the broken, insecure scared little kid that I am, right? That I'm, that I'm, uh, this is just who I am right now. And I'm terrified of what's going on. I don't know how to deal with it. Um, and then I ended up going to, um, the bridge recovery in Kentucky and spending, um, 12 weeks there. And my firm belief today is that place saved my life. Um, it taught me so much, um, that I couldn't even comprehend when I showed up there. It taught me that um, there are multiple forms of abuse that I wasn't acknowledging. It taught me that there were multiple forms of neglect that I wasn't acknowledging. It taught me that there were um, things going on in my life that were not okay um, and that I was not taking care of me in any of those regards. Um, It taught me that I was lovable for the first time. It taught me that um, I could be okay, that I could... Um, let that authentic version of myself out um, so that people could see me as the joyous, fun-loving kid that I am Um, and that it's okay for me to play and it's not all performance-based. It's just okay to be. And it was the first time I went from being a human being to, or from a human doing to a human being and uh, to know my worth and my value. Um, And then you know, I, I ended up settling back here in, in Colorado and, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of that trauma story still shows up in my life today. You know, a lot of people in my life haven't changed. Um, they still do the same things. They still have the same beliefs. Um, but what's changed is me and what's changed is how I approach life and how I, um, get to handle life today. And, um, knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm lovable and, um, I can feel my feelings and I can uh, deal with life on life's terms, not make it my terms and make it how um, or fit myself into what I think I should be, you know, and I get to write my own path today. So, um, yeah, that's how we land here. Thank you for joining us and listening to Michael's story before we Move into the Q&A. Just thank you for your support again. And go check out what we have on Instagram and Facebook. And check out our website. We're releasing journal articles. You all know what's going on. But for those of you who don't, we just have a lot of cool little quotes and stuff and ways to interact with us on social media and journal articles on our website that you can kind of just dive into and maybe just helps you grow along your personal path. Something to inspire you, something to fill out and do. Um, There's a lot of information there. 
please reach out to us. If you'd like to be a guest on this podcast, we honestly thrive with people kind of coming up and saying like, I got a story I want to tell. And if you even have just a little bit of nudge, like maybe, maybe my story could be cool. Maybe like I would like to say something, reach out to us, see how this process goes. Um, and we can just take it one step at a time to what you're comfortable with. So like, just reach out. You can go on our website. We have a be a guest format or little contact form to fill out. Fill that out and that just gets the ball rolling. So yeah, love to meet you. Love to get to know you. Um, and let's just move right on to the Q&A with Michael. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, yeah share your story. I feel like you did really well at labeling things that were like kind of hard to, to, to label, right? Name things that were hard to name. Like you kind of mentioned how you didn't really struggle through really any, much like physical abuse, but there is much more like emotional and mental. Um, and I thought what was very interesting about it was that you kind of went on not knowing what was wrong mm. right yeah and i i think i think a lot of people struggle with that and it was kind of you kind of said like you know i don't know what's going on it's like someone help me and it wasn't until you kind of took a ptsd uh test and realized oh i have this right like and you know, I wonder how many people do you think kind of have similar experiences or are going around not knowing um, what's wrong with them? I mean, I think you hit something really critical um, for me early on was that I, I had no idea. Like I, mm. I had, it, it's it's kind of funny. Like I had I had no idea that I was an alcoholic. Hmm. I had no idea that I was drinking as much as I was drinking until someone stopped me and said, like, what, what, what does a day in the life look for you, like for you? And then I actually reflected on how I had been living for eight months, right? How I had shown up at college, how I had lived college, how I had, you know, people were, are going home and I'm still looking for empties. Like the same thing was true of my trauma. Like people had to define it. Like I didn't know what trauma was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that like my sister dying would profoundly impact me for the next 25 years. You know, I didn't know that I had unprocessed, um, feelings and emotions and things in my body that were stored up and would flare up. And then, you know, I'd shove them right back down. And, um, I think most people today don't understand, um, what trauma is, what abuse can be, or what neglect mm -hmm. can be. Um, and I don't think most people know um, how to deal with it when it does present in their life. I was wondering, did you have an, like, uh, an awakening moment to all of it? Or was it kind of like little bit like by little bit, you started becoming more um, aware of kind of how much a problem your drinking was, as well as like kind of the factors that... Um, influenced you to um become an alcoholic or you know or just like dealing with the 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 negative emotions that might influence the alcoholism so um i mean i mean psychologists love tests right 
and or psychiatrists <laughs> love tests, right? And so they, they throw all these tests at me, like when I got there, and I'm like, I'm in a haze, like I'm in Arizona now. I don't know how I ended up here. Um, well, I mean, I knew how I ended up there, but like, I don't, I don't really understand why someone like me is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of figured two weeks, they give me some meds, you know, kind of fix my problem and send me back and I'd be good. And that wasn't really the case, um, that I learned about there. And, uh, so I, like, I, I knew that sometimes I drank a little bit too much in my mind. You know, but for for me and where I come from, a lot of what I do or did was pretty normal, you know, or at least it seemed pretty normal. Um, And I could justify it as normal. But I don't think that that was really the case, you know. And um, once someone gave me the framework and put it into terms I could understand, then I could identify with it and say, this is that that's what's been going on. That's true. You know, otherwise it was just like, yeah, you know, I I had to learn new standards. I had to have a new, new framework to work with. Talking about a new framework, you mentioned how you grew up Catholic and had some just tough experiences within it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how does a higher power play in your life now after um, those experiences? So, um, that, that awakening for me happened, um, it was for sure a gradual side of this. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be a, maybe what you were asking on the previous question. Yeah. Um, but that, but that awakening for me, um, like, so w- once I got to Colorado initially and, and started doing AA, um, all out, um, and going through that step work, I didn't actually have a real, like, spiritual awakening. I didn't, my spirit wasn't enlivened, um, the way that I, I thought it would be, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like this profound thing. It wasn't even like a gradually profound thing. It was like, <laughs> I'm just, I was just doing the work. And, um, yeah. and, and that was, it was necessary. Um, and I also needed something more. And, um, Mm. when I went to Kentucky and I started doing the work there is that, um, I had such a, um, concrete barrier between me and my spirit. Um, such a, um, I don't even know if it was a better way to describe it than that. It was like, um, that, that thing, that, that essence that makes me a human being was so buried down deep inside that like I was just a shell of myself still. And so doing the work there and, and um, a lot of it is ACA and, um, you know, identifying trauma and um, dealing with the trauma and processing it and going through grief and processing it and stuff like that. Um, that by the time I ended my time there, like I knew I had a soul again, like I knew I had a spirit and that was the first real awakening Um, Mm -hmm. but then most recently after leaving my job in the, in the treatment industry last May, um, in 2018, um, and working with other people in, in the 12 step community, that's where I, like my spirits really come alive. And, um, that to me is like 
the awakening that's talking in the book is that like I get to be of service all the time now, you know, um, to mm-hmm. today, you know, at three separate points today, I'm going to be, be able to be of service to someone else. Um, tomorrow I'll be of service, um, to two guys, you know, and, and I'm in the, in that community and, um, into that community. And that's where I feel my soul come alive today and know that like, you know, I'm a human being. I make mistakes. Um, I have anger and selfishness crop up all the time and I, I have to, um, take actions to deal with that. And I get to seek whatever God is today, whether that's hiking or, um, doing, uh, this podcast with you or (laughs) connecting with others or, um, raising my, you know, uh, dog or whatever it might be. Like, that's where I get to go see God today. And I, the fact that I can even use the word God is an awakening in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it is not what I thought it was. And for me today, I have an experience with a God of my understanding rather than just the idea of a God of my understanding. Um, Hmm. And that, that experience is what I rely on because there's nothing anybody can take from me with that. You know, Um, it's mine. And, and you could tell me that it's a white guy in the sky and I'm going to say, okay, cool. Glad that works for you, (laughs) you know, or that it's the universe or anything like that's, that's awesome. You know, but my experience is what I can rely on today with that, with that power greater than myself. I think what's so beautiful of what you just said is, you know, part of, I think the healing aspect of 12 step communities that often get lost with, um, other communities is like the act of service Mm. and how that really, you know, kind of how you mentioned alivens your spirit and, um, reconnects you to purpose, to spirit, to your higher power, um, or whatever, right. Brings you part of the community. Yeah. How do you navigate, those places of people pleasing and codependency that um, I kind of heard in your story of kind of keeping the family uh, in the best places possible, keeping it okay. How do you navigate both worlds? Um, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, I, I'm I'm not really sure if this is going to come across the way I wanted to, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, So I believe that both are manifestations of the spiritual malady I suffer from. Hmm. Right. And so the spiritual malady that I suffer from is knowing that I am not one of, for lack of a better term, God's child. Right. That, that we're all not the same. And, um, for sure we're made differently and for sure we have different talents and strengths and weaknesses and, um, life experiences, but we all deserve the same love and respect that I get that you get that Joe on the street gets like, so hmm. for me, um, the, the manifestations of that spiritual malady come out as people pleasing or trying to fit in or make a bunch of money or be with the right girl or, um, hmm. you know, fortunately the, the problem of alcoholism where alcohol has been removed from my life, but doesn't mean I don't show up as a selfish, self-centered prick sometimes. Um, and so, um, for me, uh, you know, I have, I have certain daily practices that, 
um, I rely on to help remove that um, that mask of self, right? And um, you know, a lot of that includes prayer and meditation, um, being out in nature, um, helping someone who's struggling. Um, you know, the the service aspect that you talked about um, is not so much um, about what I get but mm-hmm. more so along the lines of purpose today and the way I understand that. And that if I'm not bringing someone else along on the journey, then I have failed, right? That I, that I have not lived in, in whatever my God's will is today, you know, and that I've kept it for myself and just tried to get mine is the same manifestation of self. I got, I got to be helping the next guy along with me. And and mm-hmm. I'm not helping the next guy to help them. I'm helping the next guy so that they can help the next guy. And um, that's why for me, lineage is so important, right? I know who my sponsor is. I know who my sponsor sponsor is. I know who his sponsor is and who he was. And like that lineage is like, that's how this thing gets built. And that's what gives us purpose and meaning in these communities is not so much the service itself, but that, that connection, right? That, I am the same as you and you are the same as me and we're going to walk this path together. And um, that's where, you know, that spiritual connection comes through for me. I think that's a very interesting distinction. It sounded like you kind of said, right, when you're doing acts of service that you're not giving and hoping of like receiving from others. Because I think when we people please, we're looking at like whatever, it's like acceptance or um gratification or we're kind of just like seeking to receive something from someone else for sure um unbeknown and it sounded like that your act of service was kind of almost like a gift to yourself the experience i've had with it is that just by showing up and being a service that i've received wow right and um my experience prior to sobriety recovery um having this awakening is that we do service so that we look good in the eyes of God so that we get right. Whether it's the Mm -hmm. reward of heaven or whatever way they've, that people framed it, we do this so that we get right. We give money. So we get a nicer church. We give because this or right. And a lot of if then statements, and that's not my understanding of service today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's gotta be for fun and for free. And, um, it it can't be mine, right? It can't be so that I'm getting back, you know. It's so that I can, you know, help somebody else and hopefully improve their journey, whatever that might be. Yeah. I uh connected with a lot of the aspects of perfection. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that you talked about. Yeah. And I know this plays a part in my own life today. Um, but I'm curious on how do you manage perfection in your recovery? So <laughs> I'm I'm gonna throw an idea at you. And throw it at me. It, it's a it's a little um I don't know. I, I try not to manage it. Right? Huh. So when it shows up Ooh. and if I allow it to show up, Ooh. then I can then I can then take action and if I need to make amends or apologies or um you know do it you know, figure out where the problem is, then I do that. Um, but most times like 
I don't even know I'm doing it until mm. the awareness shows up that I've done it. And then I know today that that's not a failure of character or something wrong with me. I know that that's just, oh, there's that again. And then I usually go into some kind of self-soothing um, activity, um, mm. whether it's coloring or um, something where my inner child just gets to be okay, right? It gets to be a kid mm. again because I know that adult me is trying to be perfect or people please or the manifestation, but it's not actually you know, what's true and innate and good inside of me. I, I love that you said I don't try to manage it. Like when you said that, I was like, Ooh, that's so right. That's so true. Um, just like noticing and, and allowing it to almost come up and then to, you know, whatever soothe or, you know, pray or allow it to pass in a sense. Um, and, and I know you're familiar with parts work. Like that, that part of me is equally valid and valuable as the part of uh, me that is, you know, the kid, right? Like, oh, so true. And like, if I can honor that side of me, then I'm okay. You know? Yeah. Like when, when my, yeah, I've heard them called maladaptive coping mechanisms show up. It's like, oh, you know, I get that. I appreciate that. Thank you. You're actually showing me something that's much deeper, much more meaningful that needs to be worked on here. Well, and I think that, you know, it touches in on to loving your whole self instead mm. of just the parts of yourself that you think are good or okay. Yeah, for sure. Right? Loving the whole self instead of just a portion of yourself. For sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you talked about parts work. Kind of best segue to my next little point but or question is I was curious, you know, you mentioned inner child work and I was wondering, um, what do you think, what part of connecting to little Michael your inner child helped, helped you heal or help you get to where you are? Um, so what, what did it do for you? Yeah. So what, what my inner child said to me when we had that first interaction, right. Is what took you so long to get here. Hmm. Right. And that to me just sums up all of it. Right. Is like, that's I'm like what what took me so long to get there? What was blocking me from getting there? And I can identify a lot of things that were blocking me back then, right? But today it's like what's blocking me from that interaction today? And um I think um remind me what the second part of your question was. How that helped you get to where you are today? How that helped you heal? What what did reconnecting with your inner child do for you that improves your life today? So, um, so all the good things. Um, well, I mean, first and foremost, I'm not the piece of shit that I thought about myself, Mm. right? Like it showed me that there was like an innate goodness about me that I locked up and put down way deep so that I could fit in, make it work. All that, uh, all that stuff we've talked about. And, um, the experience, what what it did for me is it gave me enough courage to go out in the world today and trust that people were going to show up for me, mm-hmm. right? And um, that people cared enough about me that they they weren't going to beat up on my inner child. Like the reason, like the the protective mechanism that made me put that side of myself away will still flare up, and um, it wants to know that if I let little Michael out to play, is he going to be okay today? Mm-hmm. Is he going to be okay? And most times that answer is no. And so I, you know, I'll let him out when I'm at home alone 
or with you know someone I trust or when I'm doing back and forth writing or watching a kid's movie, you know, I'll let him out then. But then, you know, and, and, um, what the work for me today is trusting that all people are going to take care of me. Hmm. Right. Like that, um, that I can, I can be that authentic self and, um, let people see me as I am and I'll be okay. And, um, that's, like that authentic, meaningful self is is like what what more of a gift could I want, right? To like finally be okay to be me. Absolutely. What keeps you, I guess, as simple as possible? What keeps you, what keeps you sober today? Um. In in one word, purpose. Hmm. Um. Purpose. I, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you the last time that drinking crossed my mind as like a, like drinking crossed my mind period, but even as a viable option or like a good idea, um, you know, I, and then that's, that's a miracle for someone like me. Cause the minute I stop drinking on Sunday, I'm thinking about Thursday, right? Because that's when I know I can start drinking again. Um, so, you know, for me, who could a guy who could not not drink, um, that that's a miracle. So, a lot of what my program looks like today is um, I go to regular meetings regularly. I have a sponsor who knows he's my sponsor. I sponsor a lot of guys. Um, I'm regularly in the work of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I have service positions at both the group level and the district level. Um, I uh, hang out with other sober people. Um, I live with sober people. Um, and really today what it's, you know, prayer, meditation, seeking, um, seeking a connection, whether it's in nature or, um, with others, um, doing different spiritual readings, whether it's, um, tattoos on the heart or, um, you know, I'll read anything if someone suggests that it would be useful, um, Mm. And then outside of that, it's like coloring time, you know, I'll, I'll black out time to spend with my inner child. We'll watch a funny movie. We'll eat popcorn. Um, we'll go camping, like stuff like that, um, to, to build and strengthen that relationship. And, um, you know, I still go to therapy once a week to, um, help identify further blocks. I just started back in on EMDR. Um, you know, I do a lot, um, to try to continue to dig and find and, um, build that connection and clear the the junk away, you know? Um, and, and really, you know, the, the principal factor of my life today is how can I be useful? You know, um, it's who, who can I go help? You know, um, what can I do to build that relationship? What can I do to, um, just carry the message, you know, to the guy who's still suffering. Um, cause it, it has worked beyond my wildest dreams. Um, mm. and I know that it'll work for someone else who's struggling with the same thing I struggle with. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to shift gears real quick. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to ask you three questions that we ask every guest. Cool. Um, but, for all of you who are listening, 
<laughs> I'm changing the questions because the first question has always been, what are you up to now? And everyone always answers that before I even ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> so you are the first one who has a shift in these questions. Okay. Um, but the first question is, who are you grateful for? And you don't even have to mm. list a name. You can kind of describe what, what that person has done for you. Who am I grateful for? Oh, man. And I got to limit it to one person? <laughs> oh, you can name as many as you want. Um, I'm going to go with uh, my therapist in Arizona. Mm. Um, and or, or there, there are two, but the first, the first one, she wasn't even my therapist, but she's the one who finally instilled in me that I might have a drinking problem, right? Mm. And she was very kind. She just asked me how much I had been drinking. And then um, uh, <laughs> said – Oh, okay. Like, because I told her I didn't know. And then she told me to estimate. And then she started crying once I gave her a number. And she told me that the national average was four um, a week. And um, at that point, like the the way that she presented it, I knew that I had a problem. And I couldn't, Mm -hmm. I couldn't pretend like I didn't. Um, It was clear. And to see the effect on her face and the, and the emotions that she had around what my answer was um, instilled in me that this was not just a problem, but that I was affecting other people, right? It's just not me that I was hurting anymore. It was more other people, right? Um, and that changed my life. And then my therapist um, was the one who finally um, drove home that I needed help um, and I had to ask for it, right? And mm. Um, that's how I ended up in Colorado. That's how I ended up in Kentucky. That's how I ended up back in Colorado um, was because what she did was she made me um, call my dad who I hadn't spoken to in six months and um, ask for help. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did most of the talking, but the fact that I allowed her to, to make that phone call um, changed the course of my life. And and I don't know where I would be without her. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. So people thank your therapist. Yeah. Thank your counselors. <laughs> yeah, well, some uh, some of your therapists, I would say. For sure. They just want to help. Yeah. <laughs> um, so then the second question is, what is uh, your favorite book or what book would you recommend? It could be nonfiction. It could be fiction. It could be self-help. What is a book recommendation okay so always harry potter like i'm I, I, I was raised on harry potter i thought i would you have I, a favorite one of those um i mean the half-blood prince is always the one that comes mm. to mind um nice. but it's so hard to pick a favorite for sure um <laughs> but but really if i was to say hey go read this book um it would be tattoos on the heart by um father gregory boyle um mm. It, in in a loving, comical way, but very serious way, um, helped me identify with um, a God that actually loves me, right? Hmm. Not not like a demonizing, like out there God, and it really healed some of the um, 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 unhappiness and, and misery that I felt with the Catholic Church. And to know that someone was 
loving everybody and, and living, um, that kind of life was just like, that blew me away. I didn't know that was possible for people. Um, and he is a, I mean, it's just a remarkable read. Cool. Thank you. We'll, we'll be posting both those books <laughs> on our website for people to uh, check out and click on. Nice. <laughs> Harry Potter right next to Tattoos <laughs> yeah. on the Heart. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then the last question is, if you could look someone in the eye who is experiencing similar hardships right now, what would you tell them? Hmm. What would I tell them? I don't, I don't know if I would tell them anything. I, I would mm-hmm. ask them a question and, mm-hmm. and I, I would ask them, um, are, are they ready to be helped? Mm-hmm. Right. I can't, I can't help anybody who's not willing to be helped. Um, mm-hmm. but if you are ready, if you have the willingness to, for the help, I, I can help you, man. I, I, I can, I, we can walk this together. Right. And you are no longer alone. Um, but without the first part, we never get to part two. And um, so, yeah. Are you ready? Hmm. Are you ready? Thank you so much. Yeah. It's a great pleasure having you on this podcast. Thanks, Kev. I love you. Yeah. Love you too. And I love all of you who are listening out there. Thank you so much for listening to Michael's story and listening to us talk about his life and just have a discussion about um, his experience, strength, and hope. Um, Again, rate, subscribe, send us some love anywhere. It feels great to send us some love. You can do it on Instagram, on Facebook. You can just... Do it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. We really appreciate you. I really appreciate you for being here. Uh, Again, I hope you have an amazing day, week. Oh, an awesome 2020 new decade. Um, I hope this decade is full of things to help you grow, to be and achieve whatever you wish to be and achieve. (laughs) Um, so just know that whatever it is, you can tackle it, take it step by step. You are the master of your own path, your own journey. You always have the choice to choose how you proceed in any situation. So I wish you the best and till the next episode, may we always be gentle with our hearts. Mm.